Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you guys can turn to page four in your bulletins, we're going to look at our text, which is um, Ephesians 5. But um, if you can see, a certain portion, a few verses are bolded, and that's actually uh, the text that we're going to be looking at in the sermon. But I wanted to give you the whole thing for the, you know, for the context. Um, so let me read it for you, okay? Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. So uh, we are now well into our series on marriage, right? This is the fourth message. And uh, I've been reading a lot of books on marriage, right? And I've come across a lot of quotes, interesting quotes. And I just wanted to start the sermon off today by sharing with you a quote that I thought was kind of funny. And uh, it comes from Socrates, who's a famous Greek philosopher. And this is what he had to say about marriage. He said, By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure why that's so funny to me, but um, that's certainly one perspective, okay? That's certainly one perspective on marriage. But what does the Bible have to say? What is the Christian perspective on marriage? And so far what we've looked at, right, in some sense is not a distinctly Christian approach to marriage, right? We've looked at uh, marriage as commitment. We've looked at marriage as companionship, right? And whether you believe the gospel or not, there is in some way you can affirm those things. But today we're going to look at something that is distinctly Christian, that is a uniquely Christian approach to marriage, which is marriage as journey, okay? Which is marriage as journey. But before we uh, go on, let me, I need to say something um, as a kind of preliminary thing, which is if you look at the bolded section, right, in verse 25 it starts out, husbands love your wives, right? Or husbands um, yeah, love your wives, And that is specifically addressing husbands. And some of you are saying, well, does that mean that it only applies to husbands? Right? And the answer is no, it applies to both. Okay, and here's the reason why. Because if you read the passage, it says, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, but does that mean that wives don't have to love their husbands and husbands don't have to respect their wives? And the answer is, of course, no, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. But what it is saying is that each has a distinct role that they're playing in the marriage, right? And we're talking about gender roles in marriage. And I know that brings up a lot of questions, right? 
you know, and it's not without controversy. And so what we're going to do, and this is my pledge, we're going to spend an entire sermon looking at gender roles in marriage, but not today, <laughs> you know? Not today. And so set, setting that aside, what you need to know is that this command in verses 25 through 27, even though it is addressing husbands, it broadly applies to both husbands and wives. Okay? Are we on the same page? Does that make sense? All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's start. Let me give you the outline, um, and you can write it down if you want, and then we'll begin. So here's the outline. We're going to look at marriage as journey. And point number one is we're going to look at the destination. Point number two, we're going to look at uh, the destination of the journey. Point number two, we're going to look at the nature of that journey. Point number three, we're going to look at how do we do that journey. And then finally, we're going to look at um, the power for the journey. Okay, so let me repeat that. The destination of the journey, the nature of the journey, how do we do that journey, and then the power for the journey. All right, so let's begin. The destination. Well, if you look at verses uh, 25 through 27, it tells us that marriage is a journey towards a horizon. And what is that horizon? It's there in verse 27. Let me read it for you. The Apostle Paul writes, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, what this is telling us is that the ultimate design and purpose of marriage is for our holiness, to make us spotless and clean, to be without sin. And that's what Paul has in mind when he says that we will one day be in splendor. In Greek, the word literally means glory or, or radiance. And what Paul has in mind is that there is a radiant glory of absolute moral perfection and beauty that will one day be ours. Not in the here and now, but that in marriage we are progressively moving towards that destination. And so that's what marriage is. Marriage is coming alongside someone and catching a vision of that glory and saying, let's get there together. And I think, you know, that's such a beautiful vision of marriage because, you know, so often marriage is hard, you know? You know, so often when we're in the trenches of marriage, right, and the gritty reality of it hits us, and we can sort of imagine someone better, right? And you look at your spouse and you say, I've made a terrible, terrible mistake, right? The Bible here is telling us, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. The person that you imagine is, in fact, your spouse. You're just looking at them in the here and now. You're looking at a snapshot in a moment in time. And you're not looking ahead to what your spouse could become, will become, right? You're not, you're not seeing the possibility of transformation. And I think this vision of marriage is so hope-filled, right? Because what it tells us is that your spouse is a caterpillar, you know? And in the caterpillar, can you not see the butterfly, right? You can see the possibility of transformation. I remember... Um, when I first got married, I received this advice over and over again, right? Everyone seemed to be giving me this advice. And people would say to me, don't expect your spouse to change. Don't expect your spouse to change. And I, you know, and I think there's a, a, a good measure of wisdom to that. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that you know, the habits and temperaments of your spouse right, are fairly fixed. But I think in another sense, 
That is a hopeless view of marriage. You know why? Because it says you are stuck with what you have. There's no journey. There's no transformation, right? It's a kind of Socratic view of marriage. And if your marriage turns sour, you might as well become a philosopher, right? And let me say here um, a word to the singles thinking of getting married, okay? Remember that marriage is a journey towards eternal glory. And therefore, don't expect perfection in your future mate. You know? What you're really looking for is, is good raw material, you know, not the finished product. What you're really looking for, right, is not this pristine, glistening statue, but you're looking for a really good block of marble. You know what I'm saying? That you can work with. And if you're dating and you think you found that kind of pristine statue, not only are you in for a world of hurt and, and, and disillusionment, but you can't even help your spouse, you know, because you don't even see what's wrong. You don't even know how can you go to that destination together. And so that's the destination, right? The glory of sinless perfection. And so that's, and then that leads me to point number two, the nature. How do we get there? How does marriage take us to that destination? Well, let's look at verse 26. Paul writes, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, what is this verse telling us? It's telling us that marriage is for sanctification, right? That's the journey. Marriage sanctifies us. It makes us progressively more and more holy. And here's the kicker, you know. Do you know how marriage does this? Do you know how it sanctifies us? Through conflict. And, uh, you know, Pastor Sean talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, but it's through conflict. And we tend to think that marriage causes conflict and strife and sin, but in reality, marriage reveals the underlying sin issues that are, that are already there. And Tim Keller has this great illustration on this. He says, imagine your life as a bridge, right? This concrete bridge. And when you look at that bridge superficially, it looks solid, and it looks, you know, firm and, 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 and good, right? And all through your life, all these little cars, these little compact cars have gone over it, no problem, right? And these little cars are all the other relationships in your life, right? Your friends, your, your roommates, your coworkers, right? Because they don't put stress and pressure on the bridge, right? Because you can control that relationship. You can sort of set the boundaries of that relationship. But then you get married. And marriage is this five-ton Mack truck, rumbling across that bridge, right? And suddenly the bridge begins to creak and groan, right? And all the, the cracks and faults that were previously hidden are exposed in that bridge. And you want to blame the truck, right? But it's not the truck's fault. The truck doesn't cause the cracks. The truck merely exposes and reveals the cracks and faults that were already there. You see, that's what marriage does. Marriage, it so intertwines your life with someone else, right? So that that happy facade that you can sort of get away with other people, you can't get away with anymore, right? You can't hide because you know what? Your spouse is with you all the time, right? In your face, all up in your grill, you know? I remember after college, um, 
I worked three years uh, saving up and getting ready for seminary. And uh, when I got there, I was one of those fanatical students, you know. And I did all my assignments. I, I did all of my readings. I was like the most zealous student. I was so excited. And then the summer after my seminary, uh, the summer after my first year, I got married. And marriage create, you know, gave all these demands on my time, you know. And uh, I remember Christina and I would get into all of these fights. And uh, I remember saying to her, listen... I don't have time for you, okay? I don't have time to cook. I don't have time for the chores. I don't have time to go on dates with you. You need to fend for yourself, okay? And whereas before, you know, what's really interesting is whereas before as a single person, you know, being a fanatical student wasn't a problem. Actually, it was kind of commendable, you know? But what marriage did, because of all the pressures and demands, right? Marriage, it really showed that I had made being this excellent seminary student a kind of idol. I had made it the most ultimate value in my life. And the thing is, I would never have known this if it were not for all the fights and conflicts in that first year of, of our marriage, right? Marriage forced me to grapple with the sin issues in my life. And so... That's what marriage is. Marriage is two sinners, maybe for the very first time, being totally and completely real with each other. You know, no more hiding, no more, you know, faking a happy, good life, because there you are, everything is exposed, you know, and what happens then in marriage is that it's these two sinners and they're just banging heads, you know. And that's why the Apostle Paul says there at the very beginning in verse 25, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, why does the Apostle Paul begin the discussion like that? Why does he frame the discussion on marriage by saying submit to one another? And here's why. He's telling us that the chief cancer of marriage, of every marriage, is self-centeredness. Is self-centeredness. What is self-centeredness? Self-centeredness is putting your own interests and your own desires ahead of your spouse, right? It's thinking about what's best for you rather than thinking about what is best for your spouse. And it is the root of all marital conflict and all marital problems. And unless you deal with it, okay, unless you do radical surgery to remove it from your life and your marriage, it will kill you and it will destroy your marriage. I promise you that. And so here's what happens, right? You get married. And the first thing is that, you know, after the initial glow of marriage, you begin to realize and see just how selfish the other person is. And then the second thing that happens is that your spouse begins to see and point out just how selfish you are. And then the third thing that happens is that you don't think your selfishness is nearly as bad as your spouse's selfishness. I remember I was reading uh, this book on marriage by Paul David Tripp. And Paul David Tripp is a pastor. And uh, he wrote this fantastic book on marriage. And there's this point where he's talking about um, arguments that he would have with his wife. And his, and his wife would be full of complaints and criticism. And Paul David Tripp said to his wife, don't you realize that 95% of the women in our church will be thrilled to be married with me. You need to be more appreciative. 
He actually said that, you know? I commend him for putting that in his book. Because you see, we don't think our selfishness is nearly as bad as our spouse's selfishness. And you can do one of two things. You can ignore the problem and sort of carry on and sort of manage the situation and get out of each other's, of each other's way, right? You do your selfish thing. I do my selfish thing. And if you do that, what will happen is all the warmth and love in that marriage will just drain away. Or the other thing you can do is you can choose to believe your spouse. Right? You can accept what your spouse is saying and really listen and really take it to heart. Right? And accept the idea that your spouse can see things about you that you yourself cannot see. And when two people do that at the same time together, you have the possibility of a truly great marriage. You know, can you imagine that? Two people who believe that their own selfishness is the main problem. What a marriage that would be. And some of you are saying, well, what if I'm the only one doing it? What if I'm the only one doing it? Well, if you're the only one doing it and you are doing it genuinely, from the heart, consistently, consistently, then your spouse will see that. And your spouse will begin to soften. This is the only hope that we have in marriage. That we lay aside our own interests, we deny ourselves, and we focus on our own selfishness. And that is the great hope of, of, of every marriage. And so how do we do this? How do we go about helping each other towards that destination? How do we go about laying down our own interests towards that radiant splendor awaiting us in heaven. Well, Paul gives us this metaphor, which is washing. Now, that's really interesting to me, because what is this washing? Is it um, some kind of, like, delicate bath at a spa? I remember uh, Christina one time wanted to give Judah a really nice bath. And so what she did was uh, she filled the tub with warm water, and she poured, you know, uh, scented oils and bubble bath. You know, and she dimmed the lights and she lit these aromatic candles. And, you know, to set the mood just right, she played some Enya music. And, uh, and she gave Judah this, this fantastic bath. And, you know, by the way, if you're curious, Judah did not at all appreciate it. You know, he was not at all aware. It was sort of wasted effort on Judah. But is that what Paul has in mind? You know, this kind of delicate, spa-like math, bath. Well, if you read the commentaries, all the commentaries are agreed on this, that the Apostle Paul actually has a very specific Old Testament passage in mind. And that passage is Ezekiel chapter 16. And if you're familiar with Ezekiel, you know, you know that he uses very graphic and very vivid metaphors. And Ezekiel 16 is a story of where the nation of Israel is depicted as this young woman living on the streets. And this woman is just absolutely filthy, you know, where she's got like mud and feces caked all over her, right? She's got unkept hair. She's, you know, got like crud under her fingernails and she just reeks of sewage and she's got like open sores and cuts all over her body, right? And so that's the image that the Apostle Paul has in mind, right, from Ezekiel. And in this story, this young woman is bathed in preparation for a wedding. Now, I want you to imagine 
what that bath must be like. Is it this kind of frilly, delicate uh, spa bath? Absolutely not. It's going to be painful. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt like the Dickens, right? It's going to be like one of those hot steaming baths where like you scrub the layers of dirt away. And that's the image that the Apostle Paul has in mind. That's what he's talking about in a marriage that works, you know? And it is hard, I know. It is hard. It is severe. But it's good, you know? It's so good. And so how does this washing actually work? Well, Paul mixes the metaphor here a little bit. And he says, uh, in verse 26, he says, uh, we're cleansed by the washing of water with the word, right? With the word. Now, what is this word? Well, this is very uh, distinct Pauline language. And so let me read you uh, three other verses, right, in his other letters where he uses that, word, uh, that phrase, the word, Okay. Ephesians 1.13, he says, the word of truth. Philippians 2.16, he says, hold fast to the word of life. Romans 10.8, he says, we preach the word of faith. What is the word? The word is the gospel. You see, it's through the gospel, through the hearing of the gospel, that we are cleansed, that our filth and muck and sin is washed away. Now, how does that work in an actual marriage? You know, and I don't think Paul means some kind of like very narrow mechanical sense where you, like some sort of broken parrot, say to your spouse, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you. But I think what Paul has in mind is a much broader and much fuller sense where he's talking about words suffused with the gospel. And so here's how it works, okay? Your spouse has all kinds of of knowledge and insight into your life, right? That no one else knows, no one else can see. And going along with the bath metaphor, right, these are all the sensitive, vulnerable spots, you know, that when you're bathing. And your spouse knows this, and your spouse can use that information to jab you to hurt you, right, to guilt you, manipulate you, or your spouse can do the gentle, oh-so-tender cleaning of those tender spots, you know, and apply the healing balm of the gospel, you know, of restoration, of forgiveness. Um, Just to share with you my story again, I remember that first year of our marriage was really just the toughest year of my life. And it was the toughest year of our marriage. And uh, I remember one night it all came to a head. And uh, we were just really going at each other and uh, arguing. And, you know, you know, bo- you know there, were, there were issues with both sides. But let me just talk about my issues, right? Because, you know, I'm the only one up here, right? So, uh, so we were just going at each other. And I remember I said to her at one point, listen, I have to get to a church meeting. I don't have time for this. Goodbye, right? So I slammed the door. I went to my car. I was just so agitated. And I was driving to church. And I was going to a meeting of the elders, right? The, the, the board of elders was meeting to talk about, uh, on one of their agenda was to talk about bringing me on board as the pastoral intern. And I remember I got there and I was sitting kind of in the waiting room waiting for them. And I was thinking about the argument. And it really struck me, you know, it really hit me and I was just thinking about, you know, how wrong I was. And I was just so full of regret. 
And as I was thinking about this, uh, one of the elders came in and said, Michael, can you come in? It's your time. And so they wanted to hear my story and, and, and hear how I came to go about going to seminary and wanting to be a pastor. And so I sat there and I was sharing my story. And uh, while I was sharing the story, I just couldn't help it, you know, because I was so full of emotion, you know. And so I started to cry, right? And I remember, like, I was like, Michael, hold it together, right? <laughs> Keep it together. But I just couldn't help it. I just started to sob. And, you know, the elders were all kind of shocked, right? And they were like, Michael, what's going on? And, um, and, I, and I remember saying, to be honest with you, I, I really don't think I'm suited for this because my priorities are all messed up, you know? And I'm not really loving my wife. And uh, I was just sharing with them my burdens. And I, I'll never forget the pastor. His name was Pastor Ted I remember he said to the elders, he said, Gentlemen, I think Michael has demonstrated the kind of brokenness and humility that we're looking for in our pastoral intern. And so they approved me, right? And so it was really, it was really affirming and encouraging. But that night I went back and I remember talking to Christina and just really confessing to her and just really feeling so repentful, you know? And Christina was so great because... Uh, we would go on these walks and we would have these talks and she would just counsel me, you know, and she would say, Michael, you know, you need to abide in Christ. You're so agitated, you're so upset, you need to learn self-forgetfulness and stop working for your own glory and remember the very reason why you went to seminary in the first place, which is that the surpassing glory of Christ. Is that not it? You know, that you want to know Him, that you want others to know Him, that you want to serve Him. And Christina was so helpful to me at that moment. You know, not, recriminate, not recriminations, not blaming, not accusing me, but just loving me and applying the gospel to me. And that's what we need to be doing in our marriages. You know, because marriages, I'm going to tell you, marriages bring out our most intense and most intimate emotions. You know, and we feel, you know, such intense anger and anxiety and fear and jealousies and hatred. And at that moment, your spouse needs to come alongside you and point you to Christ. And maybe for some of you, you feel like, wow, that's a daunting task. I don't know, how, how can I do that? Well, let me give you um, one recommendation. Let me give you one advice. Do not neglect your times of devotionals with your spouse. I know for some of you, when you hear doing devotionals with your spouse, you're like, oh, you know, it's like, it's so awkward. Um, and it's such an imposition on my time. And oh, I don't know if I could do it. But don't you realize that marriage is to make you holy. That's the purpose of marriage. It's to make you holy. It's not for your own happiness. It's not to pursue, you know, building your net worth. It's not even ultimately for raising a family. The purpose of marriage is to come alongside someone and move on that journey towards that eternal glory awaiting us in heaven. The purpose of marriage is holiness. And so let me say a quick word now uh, to uh, by word of application to singles uh, who are looking to be married. 
Look for someone who could do that kind of washing for you with the word. And uh, here's a good test um, if you're dating. Does that person who you're dating, does that person lead you closer to Christ? Or does that person, even if they're a believer, lead you away from Christ? And if that's the case, then something needs to change. And this is why, by the way, uh, why we as Christians, the Bible says, we cannot marry a non-Christian. And I know that seems really narrow. I had this friend in high school, and he had this massive crush. He was a non-Christian. He had this massive crush on this girl, and he asked her out one day, worked up the courage. And uh, she said in response, I'm sorry, but I'm really looking to marry a Christian. And my friend came back to me, and uh, he was just so angry, you know. He was so just embittered. And he says, you Christians are so narrow. You only want to date each other. And, uh, you know, maybe that girl wasn't the most tactful, but she was absolutely right. Because the Bible is crystal clear on this. The Bible is crystal clear because, you see, marriage is a journey towards eternal glory. And therefore, how can you marry someone who's not interested in that destination, who doesn't even want to go there with you, right? who's not at all captivated by that beauty, that glory awaiting us, who cannot wash you with the word? And so what has to happen in the end is you have to compromise. You can't have Christ at the center, right? It's too uncomfortable. It's too um, troublesome in the relationship. So what you end up doing very subtly over time is you push Christ to the periphery of your life. Okay? So I only want to be as clear as the Bible is clear here that we need to find someone who is willing to go with us on that journey towards holiness, okay? We need to find someone who shares that passion with us for Christ. All right, let me, let me stop there. Let me close with this. Point number four, where do we find the power for this journey? This is a high and holy task set before us, you know, this thing we call marriage. Where do we find the resources to do this? Where do we find the resources to... Lay aside our interests, you know, to deny ourselves, to do the hard work of washing, of getting in the muck and filth of someone else to, to wash them, you know, even when in return all we get is scorn and anger. Well, the Bible says that we can only love really as much as we've been loved. We can only give out of the wealth that we already have, and that wealth is the gospel. Let me take you back to Ezekiel chapter 16. In Ezekiel 16, it's a story of God who finds this street girl, right? And we later find out that she is actually a prostitute. And he washes her, and he adorns her with the finest embroidered cloth, you know, with the richest silk and linen clothing. And more than that, he drapes her with gold and jewelry, and then at last he puts a crown on her head. Because you see, we find out at the end that this is a royal wedding. And when you go to the New Testament, we see that the bridegroom here is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the groom, and the church, his people, is his royal bride. And we look at that story and we say, what a beautiful scene, what a beautiful image. But do you realize what is really going on? There's a passage 
in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, and actually it, uh, uh, in variations it's altered in the New Testament. But in 1 John 1, 7, it says this, that Christ washes us with his blood. Christ washes us with his blood. You know, one of the liabilities of being so familiar with the Bible language is that it inures us to the shock value that that verse would have had in the original setting. Because the original audience would have read that and done a double take and said, what? What a gruesome image. Christ washes us with his blood. What does that mean? What is that telling us? It's telling us that the washing is not without tremendous cost to the washer. The washing is not without tremendous cost of the washer because you see, what is being washed is not mere dirt, but it is the eternal weight consequence of sin. And that's why in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, right, that Christ loves the church and gives himself up for her. Because you see, the only way that Jesus can wash us is through the cross. By dying the death we should have died, by suffering the penalty we alone deserve, so that in exchange we can receive His perfect record as a free gift, so that we can be washed. And that is the gospel. And when you hear the gospel, as you let the gospel sink into your heart, you will find that you have the power to wash others. That you can do the costly self-giving that that takes. You can deny yourself and really get involved in the muck and sin of other people and, and just wash them and love them. And so that's what marriage is. Marriage is coming alongside someone and pointing them to Christ and going there together on this journey. What a beautiful image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, thank you for this vision of marriage, of this washing that happens. And we know that ultimately, you're talking about the gospel. That in Christ, you wash us. And you are continuing to wash us. And not, not only in marriage, but in all our relationships with our Christian friends, in the church. Lord, we pray that we allow ourselves to be washed and we wash others. Give us that desire and power and hope and grace to other people. Lord, we pray that we would be such a church and we would be such a people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.